what people have, what people have have come to is thinking they need to be without fear before they act. And that's not how life works or human beings. You don't need to overcome your fear. You can keep all your fear. You need to overcome the inaction that your fear is trying to make you do. So be as afraid as you need to be if you are. Just figure out how to act anyway. Today is the most important day of your life. That is a message you will get daily in the Daily Discipline email from today's guest, Brian Kite. This is episode 114 of the Men to Mastery podcast. Brian Brian Kite is a highly sought after speaker, author, and consultant on effective team performance, whether that's a sporting organization team or corporate, most commonly corporate team. Um, Yeah, so Brian's got decades of experience himself in this and then as a consultant to others. In this conversation, we break down the keys to team performance from leadership to behaviors to results, and we reverse engineer a lot of the traits of how to make that happen for yourself and for a team. But before I get to to Daily Discipline, to Brian Kite, to his um, Today is the Most Important Day of Your Life sort of message, as well as his most important message, which is do the work, we'll get back to that in just a second. If you will bear with me to say thank you. We just passed by Thanksgiving weekend here, and I hope it was fantastic for everyone. I just want to express my gratitude for such a busy, fun, abundant year and the health and wellness and relationships and all the incredible stuff that have come with the year, including most of all you guys. I I so appreciate the, the feedback I get, the reactions, the actions, the thinking, the new ideas and everything else like that that this whole conversation spawns. It is uh, hopefully enriching for you guys, and believe it or not, it is probably even more so for me. And along those same lines of, call it holidays, year-end holidays coming up, I, I threw something out on Instagram, I believe last week. I called it the probably holiday gift guide. I just wanted to comment on that quickly. This is not really, this is not about your gift list. It's not about adding more junk to the to the house or clutter or things, material items. If you go through the list, really these are all quality and they're all life enhancers in some way. They're products that I personally use, endorse, have tried, experienced, and and again, enjoy or like. But most of all, if you kind of look at the theme, they're either about uh, personal self-care, they're about health, or they may be about sort of personal protection, health in terms of your security, your well-being, and that of your family and friends around you, staying situationally aware, staying safe. And if you'll just take some time to go through that list, I probably could have added twice as many things on there. Uh, I hope you will use that to think about not just from a product and service perspective, but taking more responsibility to insource your own safety and security in an ever volatile and and crazy world. Last thing in the spirit of year-end, New Year's resolutions. I'm not really big on that in terms of Jan 1. I love to carry some momentum from November, December into the new year. So uh, once again, I am am doing that. I won't get into all that today or my goals and BHAGs for 2023. I'd love to share those at some point. 
just to say that those are out there as always, some, some fun and some new and some continued stuff coming up for me in 2023. And I just want to encourage you guys to do the same. Start the year with a ton of momentum, which means start now. Start today. Today is the most important day of your life. And roll that into the new year and set out some goals for yourself. Set some stuff that you can knock down on easy wins and set out some some big, hairy, audacious stuff. So back to Brian, Brian Kite. Do the work. So one of the things we talk about today is it's fine to get educated, to learn, to listen. But the most important thing is to apply, to put it into action. He's got this daily email he's been doing for five years. You'll find the link to that on the show notes for this one at men2mastery.com slash 114. Sign up for it. But as Brian says in this episode, he would rather have you listen to one or 10, excuse me, read his emails and put those things into massive action rather than read them every day and do nothing. But they're, they're all his thoughts and his journaling, and they're really, really great insight. Uh, he is also packaging those things up, as you'll hear in this episode, into a book. This should be released now very, very soon. Not quite yet, but I'll let you know as soon as I hear about that one. We'll get, we'll get links up to it. Uh, but just a couple highlights and takeaways that are pretty powerful from this episode before we jump in. I titled the episode Simplify and Execute. That's really one of Brian's themes is that complexity kills execution and simplicity can be a differentiator. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about giving feedback as a leader and as a boss and how to give real feedback versus feedback that needs to feel good to the receiver or more importantly, the motivation to feel good as the the giver of that information. So real feedback for real performance. We talk about fear, the the good fear that can motivate success and the fear that can paralyze and and, uh, create mediocrity. And we talk about courage in terms of getting over in action. All kinds of good stuff in here from Brian and his decades of experience. Awesome guy who is really just getting started and he is taking his experience and performance now into the private equity world. So I know that they're going to crush it there. Uh, awesome conversation. Really looking forward to sharing this one with you. Let's jump in right now with episode 114, Brian Kite. All right, guys, we, we are rolling. Today is uh, the most important day of your life. And certainly it's, it's, uh, it's one I've been looking forward to, a guest I've been looking forward to having on for quite a while. Today's guest, Brian Kite, uh, BK, he's on a mission to put more discipline into your life. Um, He's worked with all kinds of individuals, as well as hundreds of businesses, sports teams, other organizations, and trading leaders, uh, addresses culture, but it's all about winning strategies and winning behavior. So super looking forward to this. Thank you for being here. BK, welcome. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it, man. It's uh, It's good to be here with you today. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Um, look, ton of stuff that uh, that we can hit on today. So I'm just going to sort of dive right in. Hopefully we can weave your story into this as we go. Um, let's just start. So we've got so many corporate guys in the audience. I'd love to talk a little bit about organizations, uh, businesses, kind of high performing groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of talking points I know you have that, uh, that really grabbed my attention were around organizations that go wrong with culture. And mm. some of the realities of leadership that really get spoken to. Uh, I, I, I've run into organizations, just a handful with amazing cultures and, and a lot that seem uh, well below par. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, it's, you know, culture is, it's fascinating to me. I, I, I've, been, I've been working and teaching in culture for 
my entire career, uh, you know, 18, 18 years or so. Um, but it preceded that for me. Um, we were talking a little bit before we, we got started here. You know, I played college football and, uh, that was my, you know, sports and football in particular, which was my main sport. That was my introduction to culture. And we didn't call it that back in the day. Nobody used the word culture. Um, but looking back, that's what it was. And I had this, I had a unique experience where, you know, I had this great culture in peewee football for the, I played five years before high school and we had a great culture. We ended up winning 40 games in a row uh, in really competitive uh, youth football in San Diego. We traveled all around and, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't middle, we didn't play middle school. It was, it was the city and we, you know, you had to, you had to get on the team and you play all the other cities. It was really, really cool. We had a great culture and we had, you know, we ended up having a good production uh, and we had a lot of, we competed really well. And we won a lot of games and, and then I got to high school and it crashed really hard in high school. Um, freshman, sophomore and junior years in particular. I mean, it went from winning 40 consecutive games to going like one and nine, two and eight freshman and sophomore years. Um, and, you know, it being like a, a miserable experience, uh, still loving the sport, but just not being a great experience. And then, and then we got a new coach uh, our, our, and not even like as a criticism of the coaches, just, just I don't think they were equipped culturally or strategically on how to do it not uncommon in, you know, the lower high school rank. And then we had, a, we, we, we had a coach who did understand, you know, strategy and culture and how it all fit. Um, it had some unique practices and we had a really great, fun, awesome sort of revitalization. My senior year went to college and we had a lot of really good talent um, and really good guys on staff. But I think just some gaps in excellence around creating culture. Uh, and that was what I fell in love with. Um, both recognized and fell in love with the the leadership and culture creation side of it. And, you know, if you're listening on audio or even looking on video, right, you, you, you can't see, like, I'm 5'9", you know, I weigh like 163 right now. I played at my highest weight in college was 182 maybe, right? Which I do tell my wife, I'm like, you got, can you imagine me with 20 more pounds, right, than I currently have? good pounds too. Right. And mostly it was my neck. Like my neck was like my, my traps connected to the bottom of my earlobes. But, but I was a guy on a football field that was always the smallest. I was the smallest guy on every field. And so talent just wasn't something that I could lean on. Physical talent wasn't something I could lean on and go compete. Well, I, I would lose, right. I could compete as hard as I wanted, but I, I'd lose. It was, it was not sound. So partly nature, partly nurture, right? I had two parents that raised me to be competitive, right? They raised me to be like caring and loving, but be competitive as hell and, you know, go after it in two really different ways. Um, and so I went onto a football field and I had to figure out how can I compete, even though I don't have the kind of physical talent that would put me in a good position. And I learned, again, part nature, part nurture, I learned how to be a great competitor on a football field when I didn't have the advantage and it made me a better football player. And I had a lot of production because of that. And I watched other guys who were physically more talented than me um, that I competed better than and beat them a lot. Right. And, you know, I lost some, but I, you know, won more than I lost. And it was, I loved it. And that was why I love football was because it was the place where I could go out and I could prove that. And so, but I also watched our team, uh, 
not execute as well as we could have and lose games, not because we had unsound game plans, not because we had not enough talent, not because our strategy wasn't good enough, but because our team wasn't aligned. Because culturally, we reacted on impulse rather than stayed true and consistent with our plan. We allowed ego of what one guy on a team wanted to do as opposed to what the plan for us to do was um, or whatever it happened to be, right? Guys didn't want to practice. And so culturally, their lack of interest in practice meant they didn't prepare as well, which means they didn't perform as well. And I saw all of this and I'm like, wow, I, I can teach that to people. I, I, I can teach that. And, um, and then, so that was where I, I fell in love with leadership, culture, and behavior. It's what's, what's called what I call the performance pathway. From an organizational perspective, every team of any kind, regardless of whether you're a small business or you know a Fortune 100, has a performance pathway. Leaders create the culture that drives the behaviors that produce results. Leaders create culture. Culture drives behavior. Behavior produces results. It's it's just the physics of how a team works. And so I reverse engineer it and I'll, I'll sort of just think about this from a production perspective because I, I, I'm a producer at heart. I'm not a, I'm not a speaker at heart. I'm not a, I'm not a culture guy at heart. Um, frankly, I, have, I don't even have like a deep love of culture. I just know what role culture plays. And so I focus on what matters, but just reverse engineer this. If you want to change results, you have to change behavior, right? And change doesn't mean 180 degrees. It doesn't mean blow up your plan and change everything. It just means a change, a tweak, sometimes big, sometimes small. Sometimes it's five things. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's a hundred. But in order to make a different result, you got you to gotta have some kind of different behavior. To change behavior in a group, you have to change culture. You can't, you can't change behavior of, of groups of people unless you change the culture that's feeding that group. It's really interesting that here we are in 2022 when we're recording this. And for as much content exists in the world, we aren't measurably better at behavior change today than we were 22 years ago. Think about that for a second. Think about the Amazon era, the YouTube era, the podcast era, all of the stuff that we do. And we're still, as a human species, we're still not measurably better at behavior change than before we had all this content. There's a reason. And it's because there's culture that exists. And then where does culture come from and where does it get created, instigated, is culture has to be led. So if we want, if we want to intentionally change a culture, to change behavior, to produce a different result, you have to lead that well. Because culture is going to form no matter what. This is, the, this is the, the, the scary part, if you will, but also the responsibility part. Culture will form no matter what we do. It either forms by design or by default. If a leader doesn't lead, and from a title, I should say, right? So, let, you know, whether it be VP, CEO, head coach, dad, whatever. If that leader in, in, the, in the responsibility, given responsibility to lead, doesn't lead, then some other leader within the group rises to influence the culture. So in, in, the, in the case, right, it would be if the CEO or the sales manager doesn't rise up to lead, then the strongest personality on that team by default becomes the de facto leader of that because they put the most energy or they command the most presence or they 
create the most revenue or they're the best player on the team. And everybody kind of looks at that person. In the absence of a great leader, we look for, all right, who else is going to be that? And then a culture forms. And a lot of times the insidious part is, right, if you have a really high-end producer who's just, right, for lack of a better word, who's just an asshole, next thing you know, what kind of culture do you have? You have a culture where treat people however you want them. As long as you make money, you can treat people however you want. And then bam, that culture starts to become the dominant belief system and it guides people's behavior. This is what gets rewarded. We're going to follow that. And then the leader gets very frustrated. So I saw this pathway, leaders, culture, behavior, results. And I started reverse engineering. If I want this result, there's behavior required to get it. If we want this behavior from people, we've got to have a culture that supports, encourages, demands, and holds people to that behavior. And if I want that culture, it's got to be extremely well-led And I viewed all of that, not as an intangible, but as maybe the most tangible thing in a business or a team. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, Although, and maybe this goes back to culture. I've seen a lot of organizations where there's sort of the old saying that incompetence promotes. Yeah. You you get somebody that's really good and you keep them in a a niche and uh, folks you can't figure out what to do with, they get promoted to some leadership or executive rank. And, And so they may be leadership in title, but then to your point, there's no leadership in practice and somebody has to take charge. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, uh, deciding what is leadership and what is not, I don't associate leadership with a title. I think it's, I think it's, it's uh, now I know, I, I know that's what a lot of people do. Um, but part of my frustration was my, my own personal experience was this. I got f- super frustrated in college uh, it started in high school. I just became self-aware and a little bit more mature about it in college as a football player with a really specific dynamic. I got tired of seeing coaches who had the title of head coach, coordinator, whatever it was, who had big egos, didn't listen, wouldn't let anybody give them feedback and weren't that good at their jobs. They were like career 500, hadn't won a championship, and they had big egos. And I, like, as a player, I was like, why? How, how do you have a big ego? I know you have the title of head coach, but there's a difference between being good at your job and being good at keeping your job. There's a big difference. And what you're describing is somebody who's good at keeping a job. I just don't have any use for that, right? Now, as I'm, you know, I'm 40 now, you know, at, 20, when I saw this, it was confusing to me. Well, now it's clear to me how it happens. And you were describing one of the dynamics. It was confusing at 20. And, and I set off on a mission to figure it out. Like, why is this happening? And, you know, now that I can see, I see the dynamics that, that unfold it. Um, I just don't believe in that. I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't believe in being good at keeping a job. I believe that if you're in a job, you have a responsibility to be good at it, not just to be good at keeping it. And, um, uh, it's just not hard for somebody to, to uh, slide by on the mountain of average for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? For whatever reason, people still believe that if somebody's been in a job for a while, they must be good at it. And I think you and I both know better. No, you don't. <laughs> no, just because you have the job doesn't mean you're good at it. It just means that nobody's fired you for it. What, what tells you whether somebody's good at it is look at their production, look at their record, look at what they actually created. That's the only measurement. I don't care if it says CEO behind your title. Show me what you built. I don't care if it says head coach. Show me your record. How many trophies do you have? 
right? Like you could be a good person who's just not that good at your job. It's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I can separate who you are from how good you are at what you do. And I hope people do that with me, right? Like I hope people look at me and say, independent of how, whatever they think I am at my job, I hope they look at me and say, Brian Kite, what kind of guy is he? Right? I don't like the way he writes. I don't like the way he speaks. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help me a whole lot. It's not for me. I mean, he's a good guy. I, that, that's okay. Right? That's fine. Yeah, 100%. You know, the, the first organization, first job I had out of university, global consulting company, it, uh, it was very strong culture. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I still sort of look back and reflect on, you know, what was good about the culture or positive about the culture and, and nothing's perfect, right? So there, there are drawbacks as well to that. One of the things about it that was, um, that was very entrenched at the time, I thought it was fairly harsh, but it was very much, we, we called it up or out, right? Yeah. So you continued to produce, you continued to advance. And even at the highest levels, you know, partnership and, uh, and sort of tenured partners, uh, again, you were getting pushed out of the pack, you know, uh, much, like, much like the wild, much like nature, right? Uh, yeah. At some point, you're kind of over the hill. Uh, but it was a very refreshing place in, in that sense. Now, again, nothing's perfect. People slid by. There was definitely fat. You know, sometimes things like client revenue outweighed, um, you know, who we were staffing and how you formed a team. And right, there's short term problems to that, as, as with anything. Uh, but there, there was something very positive about that. Uh, and it certainly came top down. Um, a couple of things that occurred to me in, in, in some of what you said, there's a uh, the book, I think it's called Legacy. It's about the New Zealand All Blacks yeah. and how their culture that was very intentional created winning, the most winning franchise of any sport anywhere in the world yeah. uh, o- over time, right? Not with uh, a generation of players, but multi-generational, multi-decade. And one of the rules that always stuck with me, kind of back to your point about you got hard workers and you got, you got raw talent and they don't always coincide. They had the no dickheads rule right? Of uh, the guys that might be superstars, but if they're not willing to fit the culture and the chemistry of the team, like they don't fit, they're out. And, and I I love that. I, I, I still haven't read that book, although I've, I I might be able to like list all the principles from the book because people have mentioned them enough, you know, sweep the sheds and redhead, bluehead, and you know, the no dickhead rule. I got, it's it's funny hearing stuff like that become so, uh, uh, you know, pop culturally entrenched uh, that even though I haven't consumed it, but the what's fascinating to me is and 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 this goes probably to something that that's worthwhile and maybe we can we can pull on this thread is what I'm most interested in is the timeless. So for example, like if you you know if you were to look at at you know my shelf over here, most of what I have on my bookshelf um, here, I only have a couple books here at home or in the office, but at home, most of my books are a hundred years old or more including, you know, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years old. Um, Because all I'm interested in is the stuff that has been tested and proven by time and eras. I'm not interested in new science. And it's not because there's not any value in new science. It's that when we're talking about things like attitude and mindset, there is no new science. When we're looking at stuff like leadership, there is no new science. Neuroscience for all of the interesting stuff neuroscience is doing, all these books on the neuroscience of leadership, it hasn't changed anything. There's nothing in neuroscience that has revealed, oh, leadership is actually like this, and this is the way it actually works, that wasn't already written about 3,000 years ago. There is a lot of stuff that has been tried to be pitched to us in neuroscience or new science that got a lot of popular traction that found out to be completely false. 
because we got all caught up in like the latest study of this or that. And then we're like, oh yeah, no, just one person on a campus wrote a book and promoted it and got it to sell before other people could test it and then found out that it couldn't be replicated and that their, their studies were just essentially BS. So when you talk about this whole, you know, the, the, the all blacks, it's this with the all blacks about, it doesn't matter how good of a player you are. If you don't integrate well with the team, you can't play here. It's a mistake, a classic mistake. A lot of businesses and a lot of teams make that if we just look at history reveals itself. And that is what's the most important thing for any group of people to compete and win. It's alignment and unity. Those are the two most important things, alignment and unity. When you lose alignment, when you lose unity, your strategy won't work. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. This is why leading the more talented the team is, the harder it is to lead. Ask anybody who's led people in sports or business, the more talent you have on your team as a, like adding multiple talented people, the harder that team is to lead. You would think, oh, you, anybody can win with these people. No, you look back and you watch, did you watch the, uh, the Jordan series? I forget what it's called. The, 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 that Michael Jordan, the, the six part series, whatever it was. No, we started in on it. We haven't, we haven't watched it. The most brilliant thing Phil Jackson did was somehow holding that Bulls team in alignment and unity for as long as he did with the people who were involved, because there's very few coaches and leaders who were able to do that. And then he did it again with Kobe and Shaq. Right. So, so same thing with the all blacks. And, and if you look and you look at this, you know, if you look at, if you look at generals, right, the greatest generals, and, and I don't, I don't do this to draw a military analogy and try to like, you know, exemplify, I use military because in that environment is life or death. And so in that arena, the stakes are the highest and so the principles that get distilled from that environment are principles that people literally lived and died according to whether they worked. If I make a mistake, right, we lose a little bit of money or we do a bad deal or whatever, we lose a game, coach gets fired, whatever it happens to be, right? We're okay, right? Cultural coaches today get fired and, you know, they make more money when they get fired than when they do when they're successful. But in war, like, you know, you die. So if you look at war, and generals, the generals who were successful over time all sing the same exact hymn. It's not strategy. It's not, it's not having, you know, the, 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 the best cannons or the best guns or the best weaponry. Certainly those things can benefit. It is having people with deep courage, deep trust, who are in deep alignment together. That's what wins. And Having a smaller group, and I see your flag behind, one of the really interesting things, right? The people don't know this, right? But in, in 1776, and I'm, I'm reading, I don't have it with me right here, but in 1776, uh, people don't understand the U.S. was split basically down the middle, 50-50, on who wanted new independent American rule and who wanted to stay under British rule. We think of our own Revolutionary War as us against the British, which it was, but in reality, half of the people who were Americans wanted to be Americans under British rule. We weren't even a united country ourselves. We were divided within, even in our own revolution, which is fascinating. And of the people who wanted American rule, only a small percentage, and this is where the three percenters come from, 
it was only 3% of Americans who were willing to actually fight for our own independence. So, so even we had some alignment. However, there's nothing stronger than a group of people who have a shared standard and a shared committed purpose together. And that's what makes it the strongest force. And so generals understood and have for a very long time that you could, you could have a smaller fighting force and you could still be superior to your combatant, to your enemy, as long as you had alignment and unity within your fighting force. And, and so when we look at that, and again, we get away from the war and the, the battles, general side, and you start to look at teams, businesses, competitors, to change a culture, you don't need the majority. You just need a small group of committed people. To change a culture in America, you don't need the majority. In fact, there is no cultural change in American history that started with the majority, ever. Everything started with the minority, a small group of people who are aligned and unified around a new standard, a new purpose, a new commitment, who said, we're going to go all in. We're not worried about who we don't have. We're not worried about who's not here. We're not worried about our talent level. We're aligned and we're unified around this standard. And if we keep going, we will make the change happen that we're aiming for. And that's, and that's, that's true in teams. That's true in, uh, that's true in businesses. That's true in families. Um, and obviously it's true in the larger, you know, sort of culture from a, from a, a community perspective, even if we're looking at the American community. That's uh, <clears throat> super encouraging given kind of where we are as a country in the world right now and, and so much going on, so much division. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're headed towards some kind of a change, I'm, I'm convinced, which I'm not quite sure what it is yet. Yeah. One, one thing that, that you, uh, you brought out somewhere in there, and, and it might have been all the way back to as you looked at, at some of the coaches you saw leading some of these teams. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and this may even start to go to some of the individual culture and leading yourself and, <clears throat> and, and how people develop and change. Uh, feedback. Uh, so, so, again, if I go back to a few of the high performing cultures that I was in, uh, brutal, honest, frequent, uh, yep. and, and constructive feedback was, it was a very critical thing. And, and I've come across more cultures more recently that uh, want to sort of soften everything. And uh, at least in my way of thinking, it makes it much, much harder to kind of make those tweaks uh, in, in changing direction. Not the 180, but the 1% or whatever it is. Where, where, does, where does feedback and the culture around feedback fit into your view? So the, the first thing before I can comment on the feedback, just to set some context, maybe the single biggest principle that guides me is simplicity. Um, because, and I say this because it, it, it's going to, if I, if, I, if I give my perspective on feedback and I don't say simplicity first, people are like, well, there's more to it than that. Yeah, there is. But, but adding more doesn't actually help us make better decisions. Uh, here's why simplicity rules the day for me. There's really two things. Number one, it's because complexity kills execution, right? If I'm giving feedback and I start thinking about all of the things that could happen, I'm paralyzed and paralyzed in action and frozen with fear because there's a billion things that could happen when I give feedback. And if I have to consider all of them, I'll never give it. And then number two is this, almost everybody else is going to make it more complex and they're going to get stuck in that spot. So if I can go to simplicity, one, I can avoid the trappings of complexity focus on execution. And then number two is I will be doing things that almost nobody else does. So with that in mind, let's just take simplicity. And this is good timing because literally we, I was just in the conference room here in my office with my team having this very conversation around feedback in our culture. What's the tension? I go, and I'll just sort of pose some questions to try to bring this out. What's the tension with simplicity in mind? What is the tension someone feels when either giving 
or receiving feedback. Let's just go on. Let's just go with one giving feedback. Let's say you got some feedback to give somebody. You see it, it's there. You want to give the feedback. What's the tension that you or somebody might feel that might cause them not to give that feedback or give that feedback fully? Yeah, I mean, you, you emphasize feel for, for me, if I think back and put myself in those, in those situations, it's, it's very emotional, right? How is this going to land with that person? How am I going to deliver it in a way that, that it lands how I want? I want to retain them. I want to develop them. I don't want to, I don't want to push them away. Uh, but, you know, it probably goes deeper as well. I'm sure I'm also having these thoughts on, um, you, you know, how are they viewing me, judging me uh, as, yeah. as a leader? I'm sure. So, so if we were to try to pinpoint the simplest possible version and just one thing, just, just to make it easy to hold, okay. what's, the, what's the number one thing, what's the number one tension we feel when giving feedback? Especially if the feedback is, if it's positive feedback, we don't ever have this tension, right? <laughs> if I'm telling you, you did a great job, I don't feel tension. I'm excited to tell you that. But if I have to tell you that I don't think you did a good job, if I have to tell you what I think I had a problem with, or that didn't go well, or I didn't like that, or you really screwed this up, whatever, whatever the issue is, what's the tension that you might feel if you, if you were thinking of telling somebody something like that? Yeah. I'll just tell you the first word that comes to mind for me is, is yeah. rejection. Got it. So let's take that. So there's a tension. If I give this feedback, I might get rejected. Like they may reject it and be mad at me, anger or whatever it is or the relationship would be struggle and broken because true or false, we can feel this tension with our own significant others and spouses. Absolutely. Right. So here we are, the, the, one of the people we love most in this world. And we literally start feeling fear of, if I give them this feedback, they might reject me. Is that fear well-founded? No, 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 it's not. But does that make it any less real for us? No. So here's the tension that we all choose. And this is the conversation and let's simplify it even further. Let's, let's, and let's, we can even like go to a higher level principle, if you will, than just feedback, honesty and feeling good. Okay. So what we feel as human beings is, and these things come under tension where we have two sound principles. Do you want to be honest with people? Yes. Principle. Yes. Okay. Do you want to make people feel good? Like, General, do you want, yes. yeah. Yeah, they, they, like, do you want people to enjoy their time around you and interactions with you? Yeah. yeah, of course you do. Okay. Does honesty and people enjoying their interaction with you ever come into tension? Of course. In conflict with each other. There you go. And so when they do, everybody has to make a decision about which one vaults higher on their priority list in that moment. And which one do most people choose more often than not? Yeah, avoiding the honesty for they, oh, and, it, but, and this is what's wild, right? People will be dishonest in an attempt to make somebody feel good and then be upset why that person doesn't change their behavior. So when it comes to feedback, here's the problem is we want feedback to always feel good and it doesn't. It is, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to throw personal opinion in here, it's a ridiculous standard. It's ridiculous for me to have feedback, whether I feel good about my feedback, isn't re really that relevant. The, the question is, if I'm a, if I'm a sender is not, do you feel if you're the receiver, let's say I'm the sender, you're the receiver. The question is not, do you feel good after I give you the feedback? If I'm giving you feedback that 
you know, is something that you didn't do well, I should have the expectation that that just won't feel that good. The question is, do I send it with good intent and an open heart? Or do I send it where I'm trying to make you feel bad? There's a big difference. As a sender, I have one responsibility. And this is where, and we could unpack a ton around this, but, but I'll, let me, I'm going to cut straight to the heart of what I think people need to hear and wrestle with. And there's, there's, there's two versions of this. There's one that's like an hour where we kind of like walk through like the dynamics. And, and, you know, if you hear this, you know, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the, uh, the punchline. And then, you know, if this makes sense to you and you feel this inside of you, go use time to investigate the lead up to this. And here's the punchline. Punchline is two parts. Number one, it is not your job to manage someone else's emotions. Your job is to manage yourself and let a grown adult process their own emotions. It's not your job. If you are sending feedback, stop trying to control what the other person feels. Not your job. Get out. Focus instead on what are you saying? Is it true? Is it full? Why are you sharing it? What's your intent? And if the other person needs to have some disruptive emotions from what you communicated, let them stop thinking that you are the arbitrator of what that person gets to feel in their life. It's not your job. That's number one. Number two is this. More often than not, more often than not, it's not the other person's emotions that we're trying to protect. It's our discomfort. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, the, I'll give you the example. Let's say I have to tell you, um, I don't even know what I had to make it completely up. Right. But let's just, whatever, let's say, let's say we have a meeting and, uh, um, and uh, uh, the way you handle yourself in the meeting, I think is the reason we didn't get the sale. Okay. And uh, I think I did, I think I had us all teed up and then something you did in my professional opinion was the reason that we mismanaged it. And the issue wasn't a technical one. It was a personal one, right? You, your ego got too big or you talked too much or whatever the issue was like trying to think of like a, trying to think of like a very kind of everyday type scenario. Right. So as soon as I start thinking, all right, I got to tell Michael that he talked too much and he came across as, you know, arrogant in this. Man, Michael might feel really uncomfortable about that. And man, you know what? I don't want him to be super uncomfortable and that's going to be super awkward for him. And then he's going to get emotional and shoot, you know, I've, I've seen him actually cry in the office before and next thing you know, there's tears, he's all emotional. And, and man, I don't, I don't want to do that to him. So I'm not going to, that's the story I tell myself, but that's not really what's happening. Here is where the discomfort the discomfort is not your emotions. The discomfort is how uncomfortable it makes me to see those emotions coming out of you. That's what I'm protecting. I'm not actually protecting your emotions when I hide the truth from you. I tell myself I am. That's not really what I'm doing. I'm protecting my emotions. I don't tell you the truth, not because it'd be uncomfortable for you, but because it would be awkward and uncomfortable for me. See the difference? And it's, the same, and it's the same thing with our spouses. We say something to our spouse. Our spouse gets mad that we say something one time. Then all of a sudden we have, a, it's really awkward for us. We feel kind of bad. We're like, oh my gosh. And we don't like the way it makes us feel. 
And so next time we think about saying something, it's not our spouse that we're trying to protect. It's ourselves. And I tell guys this all the time, like, oh, what about if your wife says, how do I look in these pants? And you're like, well, you have two choices. You can be honest or you can be dishonest. It's your call. Now, if you're honest and he's like, well, you say, if I say, if I say, eh, those don't look that good. Like you look a little bigger in those or whatever it is. You look too skinny in those. I don't know. Like those pants are unflattering on you. Like, I don't like them. Uh, you're going to sleep on the couch. Well, then you're not protecting your wife. You're protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. You're trying to protect your own day, which is just an inherently selfish choice. And I don't have a problem with it, but you better freaking own it. Don't say you're protecting somebody else's emotions when you're really just protecting yours. So that's what it comes down to in my mind when it comes to feedback is you don't have to be brutal. You can be kind and empathetic and open right, and vulnerable and fully honest. But you've got to acknowledge, one, other people are going to have their emotional reactions and experiences regardless of what you do. Stop trying to control people. And number two is address the real issue. It's your own discomfort that you have the problem with. So that those are the two things. So now again, that's the punchline. If you, if you go back, there's a lot of stuff that is under the surface that leads up to that, but that's, that's ultimately what we have to wrestle with when it comes to feedback and honesty is giving people freedom to have their own emotions, which I think we're just really bad at doing right now. And then number two is, is, um, is it's really our own discomfort that we're trying to prevent. And we got to be honest about it. That's, that's really fascinating because some of these cultures I've seen that are, uh, you know, very sort of vanilla, touchy feely, you know, soft or whatever word I might use. I'm using my own yeah. words. You're not, not putting words in your mouth is, um, it's done, uh, with this pretense of, of being a culture where we retain people. It's, it's retention based. We want satisfied employees, but everything you said was, yeah, you just spun it 180. Um, one other thing you said there, Brian, that, uh, wait, wait, wait. Keep that, keep that thought. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Let me make, let me make, well, give me, let me give you a real scenario, right? Just 15 seconds. There's a client I work for, um, one of the biggest insurance companies, right? I'll just, I won't say which one, but one of the biggest insurance companies. And they're known for the culture and they're known for the retention and the tenure, okay? But internally, internally working with them, here was the reality. Their culture was one of being nice. And so you had people that they retained who hadn't been good at their job for 15 years and everyone knew it but nobody told them. That sounds miserable to me. I mean, and, and heartbreaking because here's somebody who, who everybody was so nice that nobody told them the truth. Well, then here's what happened. Yeah. The corollary there is, is you, you lose the most talented driven people. That is correct. In that culture. And and you, and you don't attract them as much. And then here's the, here's the truly heartbreaking spot when I was working with this company was right during a lot of the digital transformation. Uh, As they transformed, a ton of people lost their jobs and they didn't find out they weren't good at their job until they had already been let go. And it was heartbreaking to watch it. Now I agreed with all of the decisions, but a lot of good people who might otherwise have been able to take responsibility for themselves were never told all because everybody wanted to make sure they felt good. And that's the downside of being nice over being honest. And this is the thing, that's, that's maybe the simplest version. People think they're being nice by not being honest. Man, I think not being honest sometimes is maybe the single, being nice to somebody is maybe the single most hurtful thing you could do 
if you're choosing being nice over being real. There's not, there doesn't need to be tension between those. I can be real and be nice. I can nicely tell you that I, I did not have a good time in this conversation. I am having a great time. I'm having a wonderful time. But I'm saying I can nicely tell you that I didn't enjoy that. I can nicely tell you that that didn't go well. You can nicely tell somebody they're screwing up. You can nicely tell somebody, hey, please back off, right? Like it's not, you don't have to like sacrifice being nice to be real with somebody. So anyway, that's the, the, the organizationally, that's a very real thing that I've seen. Sometimes retaining isn't good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I'll, you know, take a step further. I think we, <clears throat> we owe that honesty to people. I think about it as a parent, you're a parent, right? You know, what if your kid hit 20 before you ever help them correct course or develop or learn, you know, you never gave them any feedback along the way. Do parents do that? Do parents, do parents shield, yeah, yeah, do parents yeah. shield their kids from reality and truth and that happens? I think they get everything from TikTok and it's fine. That's, that's, that's heavy sarcasm intonation in my voice, right. y'all, if you, can't, if you can't quite tell. so If you're not watching the video. <laughs> um, just so, uh, fear is a deep topic. Uh, you, you mentioned fear early, early in what we're talking about there emotionally. And, and I just want to ask and slash mention about it a little bit because I know you were on the Beer Mighty Things podcast recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some of the guys over there and their tribe through, I think yeah. this tribe, I, I don't know, the world gets very small when you're working on yourself and you find other men who are, good guys who are doing are. the work. Yeah. Good guys. And, and one of the guys reached out to me just last night by coincidence, didn't know you were coming on today and this mentioned, Chris? uh, this is Chris. Yeah. Mentioned what a big impact you'd had on his life and some of what he learned from you as he was sitting in, in an ICU for, for nine days. And he mentioned your, your take on fear. Hmm. in particular that, that yeah. had impacted him. Uh, do you, do you recall what that was or what that was about? I, I can't speak about, I can't speak for what, what Chris's exact take on fear was, but, but I do know, right. The, the sort of the two, the two big themes from a fear perspective is um, I guess there's, there's three, but, but when we think of fear of is kind of when there's two, there's two big things that people are afraid of, right? Obviously the first one is being fear of uh, is fear of failure. And people talk about that all the time. And that one gets misread because, um, uh, you know, fear of failure is interesting. Most people have the, the, a misguided understanding of fear of failure. Uh, and they're not really afraid of failing. They're afraid of something else. And here's the difference. And we talk about this in the Beer Mighty Things. The quick version is this. If you're afraid of failure, then if that's what really, the fear really is, then the product in your action is you do everything in your power to be successful. So here's a quick reference point for everybody. If you are putting in max effort or significant effort to succeed, uh, then the fear that you maybe are dealing with is fear of failure because you are that fear is sparking action to prevent yourself from failing by ensuring greater success, right? Here's the difference. If you're not trying, you're not afraid of failing. If you're not trying, you're afraid of being embarrassed. And this is what people have. People think that when they don't try, they call it fear of failure. Like, why aren't you making the attempt? Like, oh, I'm afraid of failure. No, it's not fear of failure. If you're afraid of failure, you do everything in your power to win. You go compete well. You try. Okay? Because fear of failure... And not trying is basically being afraid of not having what I already don't have, right? Whereas if, because if I'm not even trying, I'm not really afraid of failure because that's where I already am. I already don't have it. I can't be afraid of that. I'm afraid of the embarrassment of trying and failing. 
So there's, there's a big difference. I always use the analogy. There's a difference between if I ask the girl on a date, uh, I'm afraid of failure. If I don't ask her on the date, it's because I was afraid of being embarrassed. See the difference? Yep. Right? If I'm afraid of failing, then I do everything in my power and I go give myself a chance to win. But if I don't ever ask her out or sales is an example, right? If I, if I, if I, if I'm not willing to go out and do all of the stuff that requires for sales, uh, it's because I'm afraid of being embarrassed at being turned down or rejected. And then the other side of fear is uh, fear of success. And, and this is maybe, you know, right, right down your path. And I do want to come to sort of the, 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 the broad topic of fear and courage, because uh, I think this can unlock some stuff for a lot of people listening. It will be like the thing from this podcast. Fear of uh, success is something I underestimated for a long, long, long time. Um, uh, at least half or more of my career, I, I, I truly, it was a blind spot for me. And fear of success is this, it is people knowing they're capable of more, but calculating the energy cost of doing more and then realizing, ah, that just sounds exhausting and like a lot of hard work. And I don't want to work that hard to do it. They know they could be successful, but they don't want to have to keep it up. They don't want the pressure. They don't want the expectations. They don't want the limelight. And they accept an average version of themselves because it's one that they think they can endure. Hmm. And, um, I didn't see it for a long time. And then, and then as I, we had these conversations that came out, you know, um, frankly, one of the places it came out was really acutely was when I was getting married and I, for various reasons, was talking about standards that I have as a husband or, a, you know, at the time, right. A boyfriend, fiance, and then husband with my wife and some of our relationship standards. And I would hear from guys, uh, in workshops and other settings and keynotes, as I would talk about some stuff, Guys have been married for a long time. You know, some guys multiple times they've been married, right? And and guys would say basically some version of this. Um, oh, you'll learn. Don't set the standard too high so early because then you have to keep it up for the whole marriage. And 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 I'd I'd heard that before, sort of as a kid, but as a as a guy who was getting married, going down that path, I heard it through a new lens of what do you mean don't choose a high standard so that I don't have to keep up a high standard with my wife? What other standard would I keep up? What, what other standard is there in a marriage other than a high standard? Why would I set a mediocre husband standard with my wife? Now, that, I'm not going to like tell you that that's not okay for your life. Because all I care about is that you own what you choose. That's all I care about. I don't mind somebody telling me that, you know, they're a carjacker. As long as I know you're a carjacker, then I can orient. Uh, so if you're like, yeah, you know, as a husband, I just really try to set an average standard. I want to be average in my relationship. I want to be average in, you know, how I do things. And I want to set a low bar and make sure my wife is kind of disappointed half the time she's around me. If that's what you want to set, I got no problem with that. It just ain't me. So, uh, you know, this... Because they think some reason like they could like that, that's an easier life to live for them. I just like, no. So I saw it in football was also when I come back and in, in sports is an easy example when you do conditioning, right? As you watch the guys like, you know, there's always three groups, right? There's the guys that were out in front in conditioning on the runs. There's the guys who were always in the back. And then there's the majority of the team trying to do what? Be right in the middle because what? If you were in the middle, the coaches couldn't see you. And you also never set a standard that you could be first because they'd, they'd ask you to do it every time. 
Yep. You never set a standard that you were last because then they'd be mad at you. It was probably be in the middle where you could what? Hide. Blend in, blend in, hide. Yeah. Blend in. yeah. And I, I, even back in the sports, I was never, ever, ever interested in that. Uh, I wanted to win all of them. And I didn't win all of them, but I tried. I competed my face off. Um, and I see this in life as well. So that's the big thing with fear is, is people are afraid of spending a lot of energy. They're trying to automate everything. And they want to create habits as opposed to learn how to make choices. Like I want, I want it to be decision-free. No, it's not decision-free. It needs to be a decision. Stop pursuing a habit and start choosing a decision. Let the habit come whenever it starts to become familiar to you. Let the habit come, not because it's mentally uh, 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 happening automatically, just get faster at making the choice. This is the big thing that I want people to like, people trying to create this like effort-free excellence. No, it needs to be effortful excellence. Right? Effort full. So on fear, it's this, right? We've got fear of failure, fear of success, fear of embarrassment. Those are like sort of these, these three pieces. The big thing with fear that I think is the overarching big breakthrough that might be the single biggest thing from, from, cause this goes right to the feedback conversation is that you don't have to get rid of fear. We don't, you have to get over inaction. What people, what people have, have come to is thinking they need to be without fear before they act. And that's not how life works or human beings. You don't need to overcome your fear. You can keep all your fear. You need to overcome the inaction that your fear is trying to make you do. So be as afraid as you need to be if you are. Just figure out how to act anyway. If you're afraid to give feedback, that's okay. It's called being a human being. Figure out how to give feedback even when you're afraid, right? You're afraid to commit to uh, stop drinking for a year? Stay afraid and choose to do it anyway and learn what it means to work in the presence of fear. That is what courage is. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of a fear and then fear could be, you know, broad terms. It could be doubt, insecurity, nervousness, anxiety. We don't like saying the word fear as, as men. Like, I'm afraid. Nobody likes to say that. Like, I'm afraid to go talk to a stranger. Guys don't typically say that stuff. Um, or I'm afraid to say this to my wife. Or I'm afraid to change jobs or whatever it happens to be. We don't enjoy that. But in the end, it's what it is. It's fear. Courage isn't the absence of that feeling and some bravado, some like, you know, manliness. Courage is being afraid and then choosing something that moves you to act that's stronger than your fear. Faith, confidence, pride, love, it doesn't matter what it is. You can be in the presence of fear and look inside yourself, find something, cultivate something, build something that's stronger than the fear. It won't make the fear go away and it doesn't need to. You just need to build something inside you that's louder and stronger than the fear you feel. And you actually learn how to be okay with that being there while you're acting. That's a great tie back to, uh, to the feedback example as, as well. Um, 
one of your, I know one of your taglines is do the work. Yeah. And you know, want to, want to migrate back to, to your brand and what you do before we run out of time here. Uh, dailydiscipline.com is, is your website. I've been a subscriber to your daily discipline email for quite some time, literally. So you talked about choices. Yeah. This thing is coming out every single day. You, you are uh, ridiculously productive, uh, you know, just from a, we talk a little bit about the content, but just as a, uh, you know, as a process, as a person, as a, as a business, mm -hmm. how, how do you go about that? Do you batch, you know, do you, are you doing these things a week at a time? What is, what's your process look like? It's funny. Everybody thinks I do. Um, I don't, I've been doing this five years, every weekday, Monday through Friday, it comes out at 6 AM Eastern. Uh, although a couple months ago we, we changed, we now let you uh, select what time you receive the email, which we, we were super excited about that. Cause we're like, I don't think anybody else is letting people choose when they receive the email. And uh, we're super excited about that. But uh, no, I, I, uh, the answer is I don't batch. I, I write almost every single one of them the day before. Um, and uh, not all the time. I, you know, every now and then I'll batch. If I'm on a, if I'm on a flight, I might, I might be able to get two or three of them done. Um, but for the most part, I write them the, the day before. And uh, where it was born out of was, um, you know, notepads like this, which are, you know, full. Right. And I saw like 12 of them stacked up on my desk and I was struck by the fact that I was the only one reading them. <laughs> I literally looked at my notes and I'm like, Oh, I'm the only, and I, by the way, at 12 is like, I understand, but I've got like 50. And I'm like, I'm the only one who can read that. And I would like flip back to something I wrote like eight years ago and reread like six pages of notes I'd written on various different topics. And I'm like, I was getting all fired up, like reading my own notes. And I was like, man, this is so good for me to keep reading this. And I was struck by, I wonder who else might enjoy reading this. And, and so that was where it started. And so, you know, I started from, I have a, I have like a, a database, I guess, if you will, of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not starting purely from scratch on every single thing. Cause I've got a, I've got a long, long database. Um, but in a given week, you know, I might have two or three that, were from a thread that I had written from some notes at some point. And then I'm at a two or three that I'm just writing top of mind right then and there that day of. And it's, it's, for me, it's, 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 uh, uh, the do the work is it's kind of like lifting weights. Um, uh, people asked me for a long time when I would get done with a keynote and they still do, they would basically say, this is really good. Thank you. Right. These are, this is the good feedback. There's, there's not good feedback too, but of the, of the good feedback, people would say, you know, thank you. This is good. Right. Oh, this is big, you know, epiphany, whatever it was. Right. Um, and then, then followed by this, I, I just, how do I keep it alive? How do I keep it alive in my life? And it was always such a frustrating question for me to hear. It still is. Uh, I don't judge it, but it's frustrating. Uh, Cause how do you keep yourself alive? You, you wake up, breathe, you start feeding yourself, you sleep, you sustain yourself, you find purpose. Like, it's the same thing. People's like, well, how do you keep this alive? I don't know. You wake up and you do it. Like at some point, other than me coming up and putting strings on you and like Geppetto Pinocchioing you through your life, there's nothing I can tell you for keeping something alive other than you wake up. And then you do or you don't, period. It's like a gym. Like, oh, how do I make it more routine? You do it more. <laughs> you know, like, like you walk into the gym, you pick up a weight, you move your feet faster than you move them automatically. Like, 
there's nothing else to do other than do it. And people don't like that answer because they know that's the truth. And it requires effort and rigor and strain against my, my desire for comfort and familiarity and routine. So I, I, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. For the people who want to keep this alive, I will get you started every day. Every day, there will be a note in your inbox somewhere connected to personal discipline on a different, a different, you know, something discipline feeds or applies to, and you've read enough, right? Sometimes they're, you know, around emotions or parenting or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty wide spectrum. I will be in your inbox every day. If, if the only thing holding you back is keeping it alive, quote unquote, I'm taking that excuse away from you. Now it's alive. If you don't do it, and that's what I put at the end of it was when you're done reading my note, I don't want you to think that was work. That was not work. That was consumption. Work is what you do when you're done reading the email. So the, the tagline at the end, the sign-off for five years, the sign-off has never changed. I put like a precursor on it now, but the sign-off is the same for five years. I don't know how many, 1500 messages have been out in five years, whatever the number is. The sign-off has been the same and it was by intent. When you're done reading, that's when the work starts. Reading my notes, reading a book, listening to this podcast is not work. It's entertainment. It's education. It's not training. You heard, but you don't know yet. You know, but you don't understand yet. You understand, but you're not doing yet. Or you're doing, but you're not producing yet. There's a cause and effect. You hear, you know, you understand, you do, you produce, then you build a really high level of skill. There's this cause flow. And so I wanted people to, to understand and then move from the thinking to the doing. And I just see a lot of people who are like, oh man, I read your notes every day. And I'm like, man, I appreciate that. I really do. But I'd be more happy if you read half of my notes and did everything you read. I'd be much happier if you read 10 of my notes a year and executed the shit out of all 10 of those. That's what I would love. <laughs> now, if you're going to read all of them, you're going to fold it in, cool. But, but um, I don't want people to, to, to read 50 books a year. I want them to read two. And I want them to do those things that are in the book. I don't care what's on your bookshelf. Right? I care what you're living out in your life. So that, that's where it came from for me. And um, man, it has been... It has been uh, interesting enough, you know, it's funny talking about fear is, uh, and I love this because uh, um, my, 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 my team is really funny. We, we have a good laugh about this. Um, and you've probably interacted with Brent a little bit. Um, uh, my team was like, this won't work. The daily email. They're like, this won't work. Nobody, nobody wants a daily email. Nobody's going to read an email every single day. Um, and I said, you know what? That may be true. I don't know yet. And we had zero subscribers. I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start writing this. And I'm going to commit to doing this for the year. We'll see where we end up. And, uh, and we did. And man, by the, I think by the end of our first year, we had 12,000 uh, subscribers. And we had like a 45% open rate. Uh, and it was just, it was, it was nuts. And everybody, including myself, was like, whoa. All right. Didn't expect, didn't expect that. But there was a real fear of writing a note and then pushing send. And the first one, I think, went out to eight people. Right five of them were my family members, three of which unsubscribed. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was where I came from. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the, the do the work piece is, is uh, 
very much tied to, I understand in content creation and all of this different stuff, you know, people have gotten addicted to consuming content and they're confusing consuming content with actually doing work. And I don't want, I don't ever want to be confused. Um, I don't want, I don't want people who are consuming my stuff to ever be confused about that. I'm cool with you consuming, but you got to know the difference between the two. Yeah, no, it's a great distinction. Thank you for making that. And, um, Let's, let's talk about where people can consume some of that stuff. But before we do, uh, let me just pick on you with one question there, because you, you told the story of how this, uh, this newsletter originated in one mm-hmm. of your newsletters, I think a couple months ago. Yeah. And uh, if I have this right, you made the decision in 2017 to do this and you started on Jan 1, 2018 in, in the spirit of do the work, you know, massive action. Why, why did you wait to start? Why did I wait to start the, uh, the email? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, what's interesting is I, I, uh, uh, I started the email almost as soon as I came up with the idea. Um, and I, I, I came up with the idea in December and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And there's some backend technical stuff. Obviously they had to get set up and distribution lists and blah, 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 the different stuff. And, um, and I started almost immediately when I came up with, uh, the concept in my mind, I did a little bit of, a little bit of market research just to sort of make sure that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, shooting a, uh, shooting a cannonball, you know, into the bottom of the ocean kind of thing. Right. I, I did the, but I, but it was just the slightest uh, uh, proof testing, if you will. Uh, we, we, I'd had a podcast with my dad before uh, at the time. And, um, and so we, I knew there was some there, um, but I, I didn't wait. I didn't wait uh, long after I decided this was what we wanted to do to actually pick it up. It actually just happened to coincide with the January one, uh, timeframe. Um, and then I think we, we probably decided, you know, on whatever it was like December 18th to say, Hey, let's launch this thing January one. That way we've got a little bit of prep time and, and, uh, and that's how we got started. So, uh, okay. if my memory serves correctly, that, that was how we got to it. Got it. Got it. I, I don't, I don't know if that was called out or not. So it wasn't a massive delay and, and you sort of decided, started taking the fundamental action and then, and then, you know, kind of yeah, what, what we see uh, from behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's awesome. I, I, I got to give a quick plug. My, my 14 year old boy that I mentioned to you off air, he made yeah. a similar decision. I don't know. He and he, I'll give he and mom credit for this one. They came up with Jan 1, 2020. Got he it. started doing burpees every day. So I, I'd been doing burpees daily, 2018, 2019 for a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. So he decided to pick up on burpees every day, Jan 1, 2020. He puts them on Instagram. So he's accountable. He's got this tribe of kids, Spartans, uh, adults, ripping people off the couch all over the place. You can get your five-year-old doing burpees right. with him. So, you know, here we are, he's closed in on a thousand. And uh, it's not to say that doing the work is easy. You know, there are days where we get to 11 p.m. We haven't done the burpees. We're on the road. He's doing them in the in the hallway of a hotel. But there's there's something really cool there in that wiring of the days that are hard. Yeah. To continue to make that choice and do it anyway. It's true. It's funny you mentioned. That. I didn't know that about your boy. One, that's awesome. Uh, and props to him. Um, and two, uh, I, I, you know, I give my five-year-old a challenge. I call it for him. I call it a challenge because it, it triggers competitive side. He loves competition. Um, if I said do push-ups, he'd be like, no. Uh, but if I challenge, if I say, hey, all right, here's your challenge, then it's like win-loss, did or didn't, passed or didn't. And so the, my go-to that I do, my challenge is I'll just be randomly in the house and I'll literally yell out challenge. 
And I'll go, 10 burpees. I'll just literally yell it. And he'll be like, and he'll drop. And he'll like, do his burpees or whatever. And, and his mom will be there. And and I'm like, you know, at five, I'm like, you know, I'm not like coaching up on a ton of form stuff. But, you know, I'll go challenge. And I'll literally pull a kettlebell out. I'll go challenge, you know, five goblet squats. And I'll literally like thrust it in his face. And he'll be like, oh, you know, like I have to like, you know. So, so uh, uh, I look forward to uh, as he gets a little older and, and his mind can wrap around it of, of saying, all right, like we're going to hit a number every day and you're going to hit that number every day. And like, you know, feeding that part of him because uh, you know, back to the, back to the point uh, that we were talking about earlier of um, I don't believe in supposed to's and should, right. There's no supposed to, there's no should in life. It's like a, it's a, a the word supposed to or should uh, uh, suggests an invisible authority that doesn't actually exist. Like you should be nice. You know, you don't have to be, you can be mean if you want, like you can just choose that. There's no should, uh, there's just consequences for our actions. Um, but life isn't easy. Life is a strain and our attempt to make it strainless is a, uh, it's a fool's errand. Life is, it requires effort. It requires struggle uh, and burpees or physical tests and challenges are a physical reminder. Put all the getting in shape stuff aside. It's a reminder that we are natural organisms that have this really unbelievable capacity to get intellectual, but we are natural organisms and natural organisms grow through strain and struggle. We improve through strain and struggle. We advance and innovate and evolve through strain and struggle. And so your 14-year-old is becoming a better version of himself because he does burpees. Is doing burpees going to make him kind? I don't know. But it's going to make him stronger physically, mentally, emotionally, and all the other stuff. And you know that. You're seeing it. You're watching him. You know him like a dad does. And I look at my five-year-old. And I'm like, hey, if you can't strain, if you can't struggle, if you can't meet a force that is opposing you in some fashion, even your own comfort and strain and struggle to choose the higher standard, right? Life is going to be hard on you. It's going to beat you up and you're going to lose. And, uh, and so I love it, man. I, I, I love, I love those pieces of putting that stuff in there because uh, I do think it will make your, your son you know, a better man. It's making him a better kid. It's going to make him a better man. It'll make him a better dad, right? It'll make him a better spouse. It'll make him a better friend. It'll make him a better, you know, community member and all of this stuff that goes into there. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess, I, I guess, I guess my, my, my uh, hope now is that my five-year-old can be at least half as, you know, uh, willing to strain as much as your son has. Cause I know he's out there kicking ass and taking names all over the world. Well, the, here's the preview that that'll be the more challenging part. And, and you already know this, right? We're, we're tying it back to personal leadership. Leadership as a father, leadership as a as a as a leader in a in an organization is uh, a lot of times we need to lead from the front. So Tom Shea told me this. So I'm I'm about ten years ahead of you in life and fatherhood. And uh, Tom Shea said, "Look, you know, you, you can't tell your kid to go out and run every day to get better at running. You're going to have to lead the way by running, and he will he will follow." So you know, fast forward ten years, Brian, you're going to be doing you're going to be doing burpees every day with your son, but it's it's all good. I'm, I, I am in a uh, one um, every time we're doing them, it's because I'm already doing them and, and he's there. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I have fully subscribed to that since before he was born that he's going to follow 
right? Wherever I go, I can't ask him to do what I'm not. And then number two is uh, I don't actually have a choice because his grandpa, Pap Pap, as he called him, uh, my father-in-law, who's an awesome guy in town with us right now in Denver. Uh, a couple months ago, he bet me $1,000 that by the time my son was 12, he'd beat me in a one-mile race. And two things. One, I'm not about to lose to my son. Two, I'm not about to lose $1,000. So, so I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice right now whether or not I'm keeping it up. Uh, I got I got pride and cash on the line. <laughs> My son like doesn't it. know yet that, that he's got seven years to beat me in a one-mile race, but he will pretty soon. He's going he to find out. His pap-pap is going to start putting him on the training regimen if I don't. So I look forward to, to, to seeing that. We're going to have to come back and do this again sometime, just talk more about fatherhood and, and raising these boys into, into good men. Um, mm-hmm. So dailydiscipline.com, Brian Kite, BK. Uh, I, you know, I want to say everybody listening to this needs to subscribe to the, to the daily discipline email and, and they should, but there's should again, take action, right? At the end of the day is read, read one and, and do one. Uh, you also, I want to plug this briefly because I'm excited about it. I know at some point you're going to be having the daily discipline book come out. Is, is this the style of like a Ryan holiday, daily stoic sort of one day, yeah. one message, get after it. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, I've been writing daily discipline every day for five years, uh, and so, you know, we've got, I don't know, whatever the number is, 1,500, 1,200 messages. And, um, you know, people who didn't subscribe for the first two or three years, uh, but have been subscribing for two years, have missed 900 of them. And so um, I do hear a lot of people saying, man, I, I really wish, where's this daily discipline? So I'm going to take, you know, 365 of them. Um, and we're almost done with the compiling, you know, the, the, the uncertainty about when it's coming out is the publishing process and all of that. But it, it, it's a, it is a daily reader of, of compiling these daily discipline messages with a theme by month. And, um, and so that'll be, uh, ideally my plan is for that. Hopefully, uh, it'll be a, uh, uh, either a December or January release. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Super look forward to that. Uh, I know that's still ish. And then I, I guess just, just last thing, we'll certainly get links up to all your endeavors for folks. We've talked a little bit more about what you're doing for personal consumers, but we started by, by corporate. I know you do keynotes, you do corporate work as well. Where do people reach out or tune in for that if it interests them as a leader or as their company? Yeah, on the, you know, my, my, uh, my core job, I moved to Denver last month. I joined a private equity firm. It's where I'm here today. Uh, and I do, uh, I'm, the, I'm the leadership and human capital uh, uh, architect here for our firm. So I take all the, all the companies that we're buying and helping grow. Uh, my job is to, to help them architect their leadership culture and behavior to maximize their, their production. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, sort of my secondary piece now is, you know, the keynotes and the workshops that I do for other businesses that aren't under our private equity uh, umbrella here at Rally Day. Um, and you can find me there at tbriankite.com. Okay. Last name is K-I-G-H-T. And that's where uh, you can find tools. We got a lot of resources on there. Um, you know, Almost all of our stuff is for free out there in terms of, you know, if you want to pick it up and you're a, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, go getter, you know, you can pick up and run with almost all of our content and run with it. Obviously, if there's, you know, if there's ways that we can help and accelerate and advise, whatever we, we do that, but we'd really try not to withhold anything um, because there's a lot of people out there. We were talking before, like, I have no problem if people want to pick up the tool and go run with it and they don't want to pay us a dime. Like, I just want to put that into the world. I want, I want people who are going to pick up tools and run. Um, you know, sometimes it's just helpful to have another set of eyes. 
I already knew you're crazy prolific. I didn't know you were doing the PE job on top of uh, everything else. Yes, yes. Congrats on that. Yeah, we we got we got we got PE. We got we got you know the business. We got the daily discipline, uh, and uh, you know number one job is obviously dad and husband, and and that's that's what uh, that's where the heartbeat is. Um, you know, but I tell my kid all the time, um, and he's five, but I put this, and, and I have a daughter too, and she's two, and and I tell them all the time. They say, "Where are you going?" And you know, I'm flying all around the world, and I'm gone, and and um, my dad set an amazing example for me on this. Um, you know, I don't have a problem being away from my kids for work um, because there's purpose. Uh, when I'm not with my kids, um, I want them to know there's a reason dad's not here. And it's because he's out contributing to people. He's out doing good things for the world. He's out trying to help. He's out, you know, attempting to leave this world better than he found it. And it's so important to him that he's willing to give up some of his time with us to go contribute to other people. I'm okay with that. I don't, I love my kids uh, and I want to be around them as much as I can. Uh, but I also have a purpose that is different than just my kids. And so um, I think one of the best things I could teach my kids is, uh, is what it means to give yourself to something that's bigger than you. Um, and even if that thing's not always, you know, not always giving to the family, which I do, but um, I don't give all of my time to my family, right? I, I devote time to things that uh, have purpose that's not just us. Uh, and I think that's something that is incredibly important. Um, and it's definitely something that I want to give to my son and give to my daughter um, so that they can see what that actually looks like. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Congratulations again on the, on the move and, uh, and the new adventures. But thank you for everything you're doing for your family, for the world and, and how you're serving out there. Uh, so tbriankite.com, dailydiscipline.com. Look forward to the upcoming book and uh, hope we'll do this again down the road after the book comes out, talk some more about fatherhood and, and the personal side of things. I would love it. I appreciate you having me on and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Super appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Brian Kite and to you guys, of course, for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and got a ton out of the conversation with, with Brian. All the links to Brian to Daily Discipline to get on that email to tbriankite.com and other places to find Brian on social media. Those are all in the show notes for this episode, men2mastery.com slash 114 for your convenience. And most importantly, as always, I say get out there and get after it. In terms of uh, Brian's tagline, let's get out and do the work this week, guys, in honor of Brian and this conversation and any inspiration, insight, or new ideas you may have gotten for Brian, let's get out and do the work.